So um, today, now I'm going to be talking a little bit fast today, I think, because there's a lot of material. I, I, I thought about cutting some of it out, and I was like, nah, I looked at the weather. Nobody's going to be wanting to go home and cut their grass, right? So, I mean, we can be here for a while. No, we'll just, but, but there is a lot of material that, that I want you to see um, because we are in the sixth letter in our Book of Revelation series, the sixth letter to the seven churches. There's seven letters all together, so next week will be the seventh letter, and then May 7th, chapter 4 in the book of Revelation is all about worship, worship in heaven. And so we're going to look at that, and then we'll take a little break, and then we'll, we'll jump back into it again. But today is the church, uh, today is a letter that Jesus is addressing to the church in Philadelphia. And he calls the church in Philadelphia the faithful church. Now last week we looked at a church in Sardis, and Sardis was a church that Jesus did not have one good thing to say about in his letter to them. Not one. Now we did say, here's what you need to do, you know, turn back to me, get back to your ways, you know, we can can turn this ship around, guys. There were still a faithful few in the church, but Sardis was a a, a spiritually dead church. They were dying spiritually. There There was no real life in them. On the outside, they looked good, but inside the church, they were dead. And the church of Philadelphia was the exact opposite of Sardis. The church in Philadelphia... Jesus had nothing bad to say to them. Not one thing. They passed his inspection with an A+. They're like the model church that we all want our churches to be like. And so Philadelphia, just to give you a little uh, little context of this this city here, was located uh, 28 miles southeast of Sardis, the church we looked at last week. And um, does anybody know what Philadelphia means? The city of brotherly love. So that's where we get that from. And as you can see, they're, they're just, we, we started with Ephesus, we worked our way up, we're coming down to Philadelphia, and then we'll see Laodicea uh, next week. But Philadelphia was the gateway, so, so here where Turkey is, this is the Asia Minor area. And Philadelphia was known as the gateway to Asia, into, if you traveled further uh, east. And Philadelphia was committed to spreading the Greek culture further east. Uh, they, they're a big Greek culture, and that's kind of what they did. They, they wanted to get their culture out there, get the Greek culture spread out. Um, now, the city here was built on the edge of a plain that was once scorched by lava from a nearby volcano. Now, what this did was this made it prime real estate for the harvesting of grapes. So grapes were their, their main uh, uh, agriculture production here. They were a major producer of grapes, and with grapes come wine. So Philadelphia also was a major producer of wine. Now, because of that, a lot of people worshipped the god of wine, which was uh, Dionysus. I think that's how you spell that, close, but not close enough, so we're good. But, but they, there were people that worshipped the god of wine because wine came from their uh, major production of grapes. Um, And then, the land that the city was built on was prone to earthquakes. How many times do we hear on the news that there was a major earthquake in the country of Turkey, right? And then we see the, the rubble and the destruction. Well, that's pretty much where they were. And so the city of Philadelphia, where this land was located at, was was. Uh, they had a lot of earthquakes there. And so a lot of people had moved to the outskirts of the city 
for fear of falling rubble and things like that when earthquakes would hit. So we'll see a little bit later on why that has some specific meaning in the letter, but a lot of these people were living in temporary housing outside of the city. So there's a little bit of context with the city here, and we're going to get right into it, Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start with the beginning of Jesus' letter to them in Revelation 3, 7. So here it is. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now that the angel is the pastor. The pastor is responsible for uh, his church's uh, spiritual condition. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Interesting description of Jesus' character that he uses to address the church in Philadelphia, which would be the faithful church. So in keeping with the understanding that the book of Revelation is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, when we read really throughout all the scriptures, but, but really when God is, is, is setting his nature, his character with the Israelites and establishing the Israelites as his chosen people, you can read all of these, these the, the adjectives, holy and true, as a way to describe his name. And we also use that, those adjectives as a way to describe Jesus. So holy and true both describe the Father and the Son. And so just to give you a few verses in that, in Leviticus chapter 19, God is establishing who he is with the Israelites, and he says, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, as human beings, I think, at least me, when I read that I am supposed to be holy, that, that word kind of, it sounds a little booming in my head, right? Like echoing and big and something that's hard to maintain, like I could never live up to the standards of being holy. And that's exactly right. None of us can live up to the standards of being holy to, to where God is. But we must do our best. We must do our best to live a life holy and set apart from all those around us. And that's what God is saying. And then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he quotes this very same verse. When you read the two um, letters that Peter writes, 1 and 2 Peter, he writes a lot about end times, and he also quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture. So he says this, For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. So basically what Peter is saying is, Listen, we, this would just be me. It's like, like, let's go back to the basics here. God says he is holy, so you must be holy. As the scriptures say, listen, church, you must be holy because God is holy. And we got to strive to do our best. And, and listen, when we mess up, the best thing to do is talk to God about it, talk to Jesus about it, and, and allow him to get you back to where you need to be. Don't beat yourself up over it as much as you can and allow God to bring the healing and the restoration that is needed so that you can continue to do the good things that he's called you to do. Now, Isaiah chapter 40. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. And that is God. Now, here's another thing, too. Like, maybe if you're here today and you're a 
what we would call a solid believer, like, like you read the scriptures and, and you kind of know this stuff, you'd say, yes, he is holy, he is true, that is who God is, that is who my Savior is. But maybe you're just coming into this faith, or you're here and you're not committed to Jesus just yet, but you're curious, you might need a little more, uh, just a little more verification that, that you know, I, I need to know that God is holy. I need to know that he is the absolute truth. And that's okay. Because God moves with us at our pace to the point to where we say to him, you are holy. You are the best thing that's happened in my life. You are true. Your word is true. And the truth is absolute, right? There is nothing more concrete than the truth because the opposite of the truth is a lie. So here's another passage I want to read that has a lot of descriptions of God that point to the truth of his character. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses wrote this, and he says this, he is the rock, God. A rock is solid, immovable. The truth is solid. You can't move the truth, right? The truth cannot be swayed. His deeds are perfect. The truth is perfect. Everything he does is just and fair, justice and fairness. Just isn't always fair, but the truth is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong how just and upright he is. This is Moses writing about God, and if anybody could write these characteristics about God and have an understanding of who God is, it would be Moses. Like Moses saw the face of God and, 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 and came down off that mountain with the Ten Commandments. So this is, this is Moses speaking of God. And then John chapter 17, Jesus. I love chapter 17 because it is a prayer that Jesus said in front of his, in front of his disciples. And he starts out by saying this prayer. He's talking to the Father. And then he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for the future believers everywhere. Like before Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, he prayed for you and I, all of us. But he says this in front of the disciples to the Father, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So for Jesus to use these words in his characteristics, in his address to to uh, the church in Philadelphia, this is some of the, the, the things that tell us this is true. He is holy and he is true. Now, let's move on to the rest of, of uh, that description in, in, in Revelation 3, chapter 7. So in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus said that he is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, and that he is the one who holds the keys to death and the grave. He has those keys, all right? But also, he is the one who holds the key to eternal life in heaven. Now, this is very interesting that, that when addressing the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says that he is the one who has the key of David. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to get really, I'm going to sound really smart <laughs> that is part of the Davidic Messiah, the, the, the Messianic eschatology. There's a big word for you. Yeah. What does that mean? That is the Hebrew uh, uh, kind of theology. So David, the King, King David, 
If you know who he is, he was a king in the Old Testament. He was a man who was, at, who was, he was a man of God's own heart. And he, and he cleared the land of Canaan so that the Israelites could come and live in that land because of the pagan nations that were there. A lot of people will say, well, God, was a, he's, he's, a, he's a mean God. He destroys people groups. He doesn't like people groups. No, he loves all people groups. But he doesn't like what these people were doing. They were worshiping false gods. They were sacrificing their children to these gods. They were doing all kinds of immoral acts in, in reverence to these gods. And the God of heaven, the creator of us all, was like, you are going to lose this beautiful land that you are living in, and I'm going to give it to my chosen people, the Israelites. And King David was the one who paved the way for that. He was a warrior. And he was a man after God's own heart. And you know what? When you read his story, you're like, how could he be a man after God's own heart? He did so many despicable things. Like, he was really kind of not a good dude. But he knew that whenever he messed up, to come to God and ask for forgiveness. And that was the the key to his being a man after God's own heart. See, God is, God, it's not that he's okay with us doing bad things. It's that when we do, he wants to be able to help us. And far too often, we cower away from him because we are afraid of the judgment we might receive. When in fact, God wants to bring us under his, under his wing, into his arms, and help us through the things that we've done that kind of put us in a bad spot. And that's what David knew. There were consequences to all the things that he did, just like with us. But David knew that. And so, so Jesus came from the same family line that King David was in. And so this key to David, David is, he was called, it was, it's called the Davidic Messiah, meaning that someday there would be a future Messiah who would rule and reign for the Israelites. Well, the Israelites, as we know, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So God said, my word, the good news of Jesus is now going to go out to the Gentiles. And the, the Jewish people who, who do not believe in Jesus right now as their Messiah will someday put their faith in him at the end, towards it all. It's all we'll look at it later on in the book of Revelation. But that's what this key to David means. But it's used here in Revelation chapter 3, and it's only used one other time, maybe two, but one time it's mentioned and I'll tell you the story here. So the same phrase is used by the prophet Isaiah. And he was talking about this guy by the name of Shebna. And Shebna uh, was the one who, who allowed those to come through the door to be, in, to, to, to be in the presence of the king of Judah at the time. Now at that time, Israel had been split up into two, two parts, two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, Judah and Israel. And so, so Shebna was the one who said, you can come in and talk to the king. Now, Shebna had a little issue with pride, and God was like, this doesn't work for me. You know, one of the things that doesn't really work with God is pride, because Lucifer, the angel who oversaw worship in heaven, allowed pride to creep into his character, and that's how he thought he was going to be better than God. And so pride is, pride is, a, is, a, is, a, is a thing that we really, gotta, we really have to watch out for. So... But Shebna thought he was better than he was, basically. And he started doing things. And so God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and said, I need you to address this. And so he does. And um, Shebna said, uh, God, says, uh, God says through Isaiah that Shebna is now going to be replaced by, by a man named Eliakim. Shebna, you've lost your position in the palace. I'm going to give it to Eliakim. 
And so in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, it says this, I will give him, Eliakim, the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. This is the same thing that Jesus said about himself in Revelation. So now Eliakim has the authority to give access to those who can see the king. And this is the highest position in the royal palace. And now Jesus is using this same prophetic words in reference to himself who will be granted access to God. All right? So this is, this is, this is prophetic, and it's, it's things that the Jewish people would understand that Jesus is saying. And, and so here's the deal. This is what all of this means. The key of David represents Jesus' authority to open the entrance to heaven. That's what that means. And once it's closed, well, after the door to heaven is open, right? No one can close it. And once it's closed, no one can open it. So once it's closed, those who rejected Jesus, who denied Jesus while living here on this earth, their judgment is met. And the door to heaven is closed. That's it. The entrance to heaven is now closed. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus said this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Amen. There's all kinds of religions and faiths and philosophies out there that say there's all kinds of ways to heaven. This here tells me that there is not. There is only one way. You cannot get to God by bypassing Jesus. You can only get to God through Jesus. So not only does Jesus open the door to the kingdom of eternity, he is the door to our eternal salvation. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why this is so important that we kind of get an understanding of this. So, so let's continue to read this letter to Philadelphia in verse 8. We'll read verses 8 and 9. So here's what he says. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. How about Jesus says that to you? You got someone picking on you and Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm going to make sure they know you and I are together. How would that make you feel? You know, right? So that's what Jesus is saying here. The, the church in Philadelphia was small, but they were mighty. They stayed true to the gospel of Jesus and they did not deny him. Now here's the, here's the craziest thing about God, okay? God loves to use those who do not seem qualified. His strength is found in our weakness. Like, for instance, if I'm looking for somebody to lead a group or a class or something like that, all right, and somebody responds to me with, I, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I would love to do it, but I just don't know if I, I don't know if I can. I think that's the person that God wants to lead that class or to lead that group. 
because they don't feel qualified, but they feel called. Okay? Now, if I'm asking somebody to lead a group or a, or a, or a, or a class, or, or, and all of a sudden they got the Superman stance, and they're like, I'm your guy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guarantee you there's going to be trouble down the road. You know, God loves, when we don't feel qualified, when we, when we second-guess ourselves, but yet we see God moving in what we do, man, that is God using your weakness and making you strong. And that's what I think he did out of the church in Philadelphia. And so I want to read a story to you. I wanna, we're going to kind of go around the path here for a minute. And there's this guy by the name of Paul who wrote most of the New Testament who had this very same issue. And this is really interesting. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and um, starts in verse 8. Actually, I'm going to start halfway through verse 7. So this is Paul, all right? Now, Paul was a superhero for the gospel, all right? Now, before I read this, I just want to give you a little background on Paul. Paul's name used to be Saul, and he used to be a religious leader who hated Jesus and hated Christians. And in the book of Acts, it says he went door to door dragging believers out of their homes to torture, to kill them, and to get them to deny Jesus. That's what he did. Because he felt called to do that. And then he has this crazy encounter with Jesus. He's like, whoa, I made a mistake. And he's sold out for Jesus. Okay? So I want to read this to you. So he writes this to the Corinthians. Uh, halfway through verse 7, he says, I was given, and this is from the New Living Translation, so it might read a little different if you're in the New King James. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and the hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul was a superstar for Jesus, but he was once the greatest enemy. And think about this. Paul had to go into hiding for a little bit to learn all this stuff about Jesus, but he, he switched camps really quick, all right? And imagine this. Now you're sold out for Jesus, and you're traveling around. Even some of the disciples are like, who's Hank? Why are you bringing him into what? Whoa, whoa. And they're like, yeah, he's, he's cool, man. Imagine traveling from town to town, preaching Jesus to whom you once tormented the believers. And somebody comes up to you and says, you, you took my aunt. You took my uncle, my dad, my sister. You took a family member of mine who loved Jesus. And Paul has to have a conversation with them. Imagine that. So some people say that this thorn in his side was a sickness. Maybe it was a blindness he was dealing with. Maybe it was, you know, whatever. Now, now this is just me, okay? I don't have anything to base this off of. But I wonder, I just wonder if this messenger of Satan was a demon that was constantly reminding him of his past and his religious pride that put him in a place where he was. 
Because Paul says it keeps me from becoming proud. And now he's a superstar for Jesus. And what if that same religious pride starts creeping up? Right? I just wonder if maybe that's what it was. You know, I, I don't know. But, but something was tormenting him to keep him from becoming the person he once was before he met Jesus. And then Jesus tells him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul understands this. Now, also, in Isaiah chapter 40, God says the same thing through Isaiah. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. So anytime we feel like we just can't make it, we can't do it, life is too much, I can't handle this, our strength is made perfect in our weakness. God's grace and God's mercy is always enough. Even when we don't feel like it is, it's enough. He is perfect and true in all he does. Amen? Now, because of Philadelphia's faithfulness, Jesus then makes five promises to them. And I believe that these promises are for all believers, for all of us who remain true to Jesus in the same way that the church in Philadelphia did. So we're going we're gonna to go through this here. But, but the first promise is that they would be acknowledged as true followers of the Messiah, true followers of Jesus. That's the first thing he says. Like he says, in, in, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. These people who have been tormenting you, who have been persecuting you, who have been opposing you. Now, if you remember, in the second letter we wrote to the church in Smyrna, they too were being slandered by the Jewish people. See, the the Jewish synagogues were opening their building up for the Christians to come and have church in. And then something shifted and the Jewish people said, nope, I don't, nope, you're not allowed in here. As a matter of fact, not. You're not. We don't, we're, we're, we're separating ourselves from you. And, and, and just like Smyrna, the, the, the believers in, in Philadelphia were being excommunicated from the Jewish community. And business owners were, were, were uh, losing their businesses. There was opposition, all right? So in Smyrna, we read that there was slander from the Jewish community. And in Philadelphia, it's opposition that they're coming up against. And Jesus says, they are part of the synagogue of Satan. It's a pretty heavy accusation but it's jesus so i'm not gonna you know like hey jesus is that a little harsh well you know what when you persecute one of jesus's kids guess what he looks out for us he looks out for us and that's what's happening here he says they're going to come to you and they are going to recognize who you are to me now when prophesying of the new Jerusalem, we're going we're gonna to touch on this a little bit today, and then later on in this series, we're really going to look at this new Jerusalem. But the prophet Isaiah had this to say. This is not the first time that God, or Jesus, says, I'm going to take care of those who are mine, and those who have been opposing you will publicly recognize who you are. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 60. The descendants of your tormentors will come and bow before you. Those who despised you will kiss your feet. 
They will call you the city of the Lord and Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So, listen. It, it, just like Paul said, those, I, I, those who are insulting me, those who are persecuting me, those who are opposing me, my strength is made in the weakness of those hurts, in the weakness of those attacks. My, the, God's strength is made perfect in that. And Jesus is saying here, those who oppose you, they will recognize who you are to me. It, it, just, it just never happens in the time we want it to happen, right? Like, I want it to happen now, God. You know, well, just, just chill on that for a minute. God is graceful and he's merciful. And even those who don't like us, he loves. So we got to deal with that. So that's the first promise, all right? The second promise um, is in verse 10. And it says this, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is speaking of the seven-year tribulation period, which we will look at later on. It starts in, uh, I think, Revelation chapter 6, and that is the time of testing for the world, for those who oppose Jesus. Now, the protection from this great time of testing will be the removal of all of God's people by an event that is referred to as the rapture. You want to start a great debate in a room full of Christians, ask them what type of rapture they believe in. Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, any kind of rapture at all. And they're all going to be different. And some of them are going to say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, right, but Jesus says right here, I'll protect you from that. I'll protect you from that. And so, so I believe, I believe, and I'm hopeful for a pre-tribulation rapture. And we'll talk about that later on. But that's kind of my thoughts. Could be mid, could be post, doesn't matter. Either way, it's going to happen. And actually, I would like to experience it in my lifetime because I just want to be able to experience it, like caught up in the clouds, like, you know, like, like the other day, um, Kim was trying to get a hold of us at the house, and none of us were answering our phones. And then she's like, what the heck? Why could you, weren't you guys answering your phones? Because nowadays, right, everybody's... I said, well, Kim, I think we all got raptured up. <laughs> it, wasn't, it was only funny to three of us, but, you know... <laughs> But anyways, listen to this. So in Thessalonica, there were people telling the believers in that city, hey, you missed it, Jesus already came. You missed your Messiah. See, see, people at the time thought Jesus was coming back like 2,000 years ago. But listen to this. Here is the main passage that we use when we're referring to the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. I mean, what does that sound like to you? Caught up. You don't have to have the specific word in there to understand what he's talking about. And so 
So that's the, 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 the second promise, is protection during this tribulation period. Now again, whether it's before it happens, during, afterwards, or all three, it's going to happen, okay? And, and actually, we'll, I really love talking about that, but when we get into that in the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll, we'll talk about that even more. Now the third promise is that Jesus is returning, and soon. He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Well, Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. See, back then, they were, they were looking for him. They were waiting for him to return. And, and this was written, you know, like shortly after he ascended into heaven. And they're still waiting, and we're still waiting. Here's all I got to say about that. As every day goes by, we're one day, a day closer. We don't know the time, the day, or the hour, but we do know he's coming. And here's the deal. He can say soon because Jesus dwells in the eternal. So 2,000 years to him, not that long. And he's waiting. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his patience for all people to come to him. He's waiting for that time. All right? So even that person who is insulting and persecuting you that God absolutely loves, that kind of rubs you the wrong way, God loves them. And he wants them to be with him too. So Jesus is coming soon, but there's a, there's a promise here. There's a, there's a caveat to this promise. In the meantime, we have work to do, church. What does he say? He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. So what does that mean? It means we don't want to lose what we have, all right? There's a, there's a parable in Matthew chapter 25. There's a story Jesus said. It's called the parable of the talents or the parable of the three servants. It's a story that, that is used to describe Jesus and us. And, and anyways, these guys are given bags of silver and stuff, and, and they, they multiplied them. They doubled them. But one guy who was given the least amount, one bag of silver, he, he dug it in the ground and hid it. And then when the master came back, he said, here's what I have for you. I didn't do anything with it. And the master says, take what's his and give it to the guy that multiplied the most. Away with me, you wicked and lazy servant, to the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So basically, this servant, this person, did not do anything with what the master had given him. And basically, it's this. We can lose the rewards that we earn here on this earth, our eternal rewards, by our unfaithfulness to Jesus. What is our unfaithfulness to Jesus? It's not doing what he wants us to do. Like, maybe God is calling you to reach out to that coworker that rubs you the wrong way. Maybe God is calling you to invite that neighbor that you built that super tall fence the church, you know, because you don't, that neighbor rubs you the wrong way. Maybe God is calling you to lead a life group, a small group here at the church, or, or become more involved, and you don't want to do it. That is considered unfaithfulness to Jesus. He's calling us to do things. And, and, and what rewards we have earned while we're here on this earth that we'll get in heaven, we'll lose. Because if you're not going to do it, Jesus will take it from you and give it to somebody else. And so that's what, what Jesus is saying here. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown, so that no one will take away your eternal rewards. Jesus is, Jesus is saying this. So 
And, and even these crowns that we get, there's crowns that we can earn while we're here on earth. We'll get when we go to heaven. We're going to throw them back to Jesus' feet. But either way, we don't want to give them up. And so that's what he's saying here. It's possible to lose the eternal rewards that we have been given while here on this earth and have them given to someone else. If, if we're not going to use what Jesus is calling us to do, if we're not going to use the gifts that he's given us, he'll find someone else to do it. And so he's encouraging us to remain faithful. There was, I was thinking this morning about this. There was a passage we looked over not too long ago. Um, it says this, that um, when you don't do what you know you're supposed to do, that is a sin. Now, if we struggle with an addiction of something or we do, we're doing things we know we ought not to be doing and we do them because we know we're not supposed to do them, we know that's a sin, right? But this passage is specific. If you do not do what God is calling you to do, like reach out to somebody, lead a class, you know, whatever, that's a sin. That's unfaithful. So, so really, we have, to, we have to, Jesus is saying, remain faithful to me. And then the second part of, and then in verse 12, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, the fourth promise, the fourth and fifth are in both verse 12. So the first part is this. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. Now this is interesting. This is the fourth promise that Jesus makes to all who are victorious, to all who overcome the opposition that they face in the world today. When you press through it, when you, when you deal with the insults, when you deal with the hardships, when you deal with the, the hard things in life that we're dealing with that cause our faith to be rocked a little bit, when you remain victorious in that, when you overcome that, Jesus is saying, you will become pillars in the temple of my God, and you'll never have to leave. Now, this kind of had a special meaning to the people in Philadelphia because a lot of them were living outside of the city in temporary housing because of the earthquakes. And so Jesus is like, hey, I've got permanent housing for you, a permanent home for you in heaven. Where my father's house is, there are many mansions. In my father's house, there are many mansions. For us, all of us. And Jesus is saying, i got a place for you. There's a day coming where you will never have to move again. It's permanent. It's eternal. And for all believers, for all of us, Jesus is speaking of our eternal security where nothing and no one can do us harm living within the eternal temple of God. And then I'm going to whip off a few verses here that kind of support that. 1 Peter chapter 2, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, don't you realize that all of you together, all of us, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives within you. All believers together for eternity are the pillars that make up the temple of God. We are the temple of God. We are the eternal home that God has for us. Revelation, and then to the second part of chapter 12, and I will write on them the name of my God and they will be citizens in the city of my God. It's funny, Thomas, you said you're a citizen of heaven. The new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. See, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, all of this comes down. And we're going to be a part of it here. Revelation chapter 19. Speaking of Jesus. 
a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. Revelation chapter 22. And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. That's speaking of Jesus' followers, us. So he'll have a name that nobody knows but him and we'll have names that nobody knows but us and him. That's what he's talking about here. And we'll unpack the significance of these names later on in this series. But then Isaiah prophesies in chapter 65, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Everything will be new. Everything will be new. We think the flowers that are blooming right now are beautiful. Wait until the eternal part. We don't even have a clue what that's going to look like. And then look what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. It's almost like Jesus and Peter were kind of hand in hand in this, right? There's a new heaven, a new earth coming down. There's, there's a new Jerusalem, a new city, a new temple of God. But listen, while we're waiting for that, do your best. Do your best to live a life worthy of the call. Peter is telling us about the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven where Jesus will rule and reign from his throne in a world filled with God's righteousness. Right now we live in a, in a, in a world that is the devil's kingdom. So think about that. Also, Peter is saying the same thing that Jesus told the church in Philadelphia. While we are waiting for this to happen, Live a life worthy of not losing your reward. And I think, I think the warning to that is because it's going to be worth it. You're going to be glad you did. It's harder, but it's worth it. And then Philippians chapter 3. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Well, we're waiting here, church. But we want as many people to be waiting with us, right? People who don't know Jesus to join us in this wait. Hebrews chapter 13. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. This is where our hope lies. When, you're, when, you, when, when you just don't think you can handle life anymore on this earth, you, you, you focus on these kinds of passages. Because this is what builds hope in us. And then Revelation 21, skip all the way to the end, but I just want to share this with you. This is John, and he saw this. Remember, when he wrote this letter, this book, he said, I'm writing down everything that I saw and heard. Everything. These weren't just dreams and, and imagination things. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This is what it's all about, church. This. But while we're here, we have things to do. We have people to bring along. We have the good news to share. We'll dive into this chapter 21 and some of this other stuff later on in this series. But this is exactly what Jesus was talking about 
when the new Jerusalem and the new heaven is established here on the earth. And so I'll wrap it up with this. We do not know when Jesus will return and set up his kingdom here on earth, when the new Jerusalem comes down. What we do know is that we need to be ready. We need to stay alert, and we need to continue fighting the good fight and sharing the good news of Jesus. That's what we need to do, church. We need to be prepared in such a way that we do not lose our crown, that we do not give away that which we have already earned, our rewards. And it's not like I'm trying to get the most rewards, I'm trying to outgain out everybody else with my rewards. It's because Jesus knows how special it's going to be when we get those rewards that were designed for just us. You don't, you don't want to lose out on this, is what he's saying. And the best way to do this, church, is to lean on Jesus every step of the way and every minute of every day. It's the only way we can do this. And so I'll leave you with this verse. will be the, the ending of the sermon. Because life is hard, Right? And right now, there's probably somebody here that's like, I, I hope I haven't lost a reward. You know, we start thinking these things, right? It gets in our head, and that's the enemy. If you're thinking you might have lost your reward, that is the enemy. You just get close to Jesus. Listen to this. Here's what Jesus said. John chapter 16. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. It isn't going to be a fun life. It's going to be hard. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, man, I thank you, God, for who you are. and I thank you for, God, I thank you for when we start digging into some of this stuff in Scripture that we live in such a time right now that we have the internet <laughs> at our disposal. And we can see where, where these verses are, are prophesied in the Old Testament and, and look them up and compare them to other verses and, and how all these different passages point to what you're saying in the last book in the Bible. And I thank you for that, God, because you are holy and true and you are the one who holds the key to heaven. And when we lean on you and trust in you and put our faith in you, you will be the door that will say, welcome into your eternal home. You have been granted access to the throne room of God. And I thank you for that, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.